either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Can this week break us out of the January movie doldrums? I don't know, but we'll give it a shot. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. Let's start with the latest from Guy Ritchie. It's a British drug lord trying to sell off his highly profitable empire to a dynasty of Oklahoma billionaires, the gentleman. There once was a young and foolish dragon who came to ask a wise and cunning lion about acquiring his territory. Now, the lion, he wasn't interested so he told the little dragon to but the dragon, he persisted. Oh, goody. He started a war. So the lion took the little dragon for a walk and put five bullets in his little dragon head. He's warming up now, isn't it? There's a message in there. Maybe you can explain it to me. The young succeed the old. Enjoy the show. Well, he's not really a British drug lord. He is... Only that he lives there. Right. He's actually an American Rhodes Scholar that decided to put his brains to work in the drug trade, selling bush or super cheese or all these other words for weed that I didn't know. (laughs) So I guess I'm not as hip as I thought I was. And that is Matthew McConaughey. He is the star of this really star-studded cast that makes up the gentleman. And now if you have about 30, 35 minutes, I'll go through the plot for you. (laughs) Because... uh, I'll tell you what, this thing is complicated and involved. But you know what it is? It's Guy Ritchie trying to get back to the kind of films where he made his hay. Right, because, uh, you know, the he he hasn't had a hit in uh, about 10 years. And then last year he came out with a little thing called Aladdin. And that, remember the time, I was amazed when I first found out that he was getting to direct that. Yeah. It just seems such a mis- mismatch. Yeah, and regardless of the fact that it made buckets and buckets of money. Right. It's not very good. But that doesn't matter because it did. It made buckets and buckets of money. Right. It was a lifeline for this filmmaker. Ooh. And so he came right back out with his shooting boots going, no, I'm not the Aladdin guy. This is Guy Ritchie. <laughs> and even before that, he has been doing really big franchise movies now for a while. If you go back to the Sherlock Holmes yeah. franchise. Yeah. and But you're right. If you go back to the beginning... When he first burst on the scene, it was from Snatch, yeah. Lock, Stock, and Smoking Barrels, yeah. and then Rock and, Rock and Rolla after that. So this goes back to that genre. It's it's the crime comedy, British gangster, fast-talking. You probably need subtitles for these <laughs> Cockney accents type of thing. It's, it's It moves fast and has a lot going on. But this one definitely... Now, so many years in the game, this one has a lot more shine to it than those did. Mm. You know, he was just getting into it then. But everything about this movie, everything about the characters, its script, everything about it just screams, I'm not done. Right. Don't think that you young whippersnappers who come in, you know, I'm still the king of this jungle. Mm -hmm. And that's not Mm -hmm. only what the characters in this movie are saying, that's clearly what he's saying. Because if I just boil it down to, to the essence, yeah, the American who's a British drug lord is Mickey. He's played by Matthew McConaughey. And he has assembled this vast network of underground hives to grow all this super cheese. How they got super cheese, I don't know, but I like it. (laughs) Anyway, he's made so much money now, and he's married to Roz, played by Michelle Dockery, and he decides, maybe I just want to live the good life, and I'll sell my entire operation. So he makes an offer 
uh, to uh, this other criminal nerdy guy. And uh, while he's mulling the offer, while the nerdy guy is mulling the offer, Roz thinks she smells fuckery afoot. <laughs> she says, there's fuckery afoot. And boy, she's right. There's a lot of it. Because then you get this private investigator, played by Hugh Grant, who's really good. R- really, a lot of this entire cast, uh, heavy on the boys' club, is very good. And Hugh Grant really sinks his teeth into this part. And he's a, he's a private investigator that goes to see Mickey's number two man, Ray, played by Charlie Hunnam, who's actually as good as, really, I've ever seen him. Mm. And it's weird because the, the, the private investigator says that he knows what's going on behind Mickey's back, and he tells Ray that he can save Mickey's hide for a nice, hefty sum. And in telling the story of what's going on, all these people trying to bring Mickey down, he tells it through this screenplay that he's written. He's conveniently written a screenplay called Bush, another (laughs) name for the weed, and he throws it down. So that becomes, this movie is so meta, it's so shamelessly meta, so it takes us through this screenplay as Hugh Grant is telling it to Ray. Then we get the story. But, of course, when you do it that way, it lets Guy Ritchie follow threads that aren't really there. Oh, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to backtrack. Is this guy dead? Oh, maybe not. Maybe he's not really dead. That could be one way the story goes, but it really goes this way. So it does a lot of that, plays with a lot of those threads, and it becomes storytelling about storytelling. And... It just really drives home that point about people trying to take down the king of the jungle. I'm still the king of the jungle. I mean, you really, really get that message many, many times. And the thing about it is it's not it's not bad. It's compelling. It's engaging in some moments. It's also drags in others. The humor is not as sharp as it was in those early those well, early like, films. I would say it's fairly tone deaf. The humor, I mean, you mentioned it's a boys club. I mean, the humor... Might have been considered funny about 10 years ago. It does, and, and yeah. today it just seems like, okay, boomer. It, <laughs> I know, I know how you hate to say that. I do. Um, it does feel about 10 years too late for some of this humor. Um, and even then it's not that funny. It's, but it is clever. And the other thing it does in, in, in uh, calling attention to how meta it is, it reminds you, anybody that has seen Knives Out, how much better this type of storytelling was just done. Right. Uh, I mean, that's tough. If you remind somebody of I, Knives Out, that's that's a high watermark for storytelling well, right there. Yeah, so. it's, it's just because this plot is so intricate and mm-hmm. there's so many different ways it could go. It reminds you of that yeah, type of sure. layering oh, and yeah. who's really in charge. Ensemble piece. Yeah, and how does it really go? This is a possible way, but no, we're going to go back and do it this way. And, and it just reminds you how it can be done and it can feel more relevant to today and and more urgent. So even at its best moments, this does feel like it's just a little bit of its worldview is a bit behind. Uh, It still can. It's almost like it's an old man pretending not to be an old man. (laughs) Well, well, he's really it uh, it really is a um, shaking a fist uh, more than I've seen a director so blatantly do since really Lars von Trier, who's famous for that. This is just so clearly saying, no, look, I can still, like you said, I've done the Aladdin, I've done the Disney, but look, I can still do this stuff, the rough and tumble, the shoot 'em up But the truth is, can he? I don't know. The best thing about this movie is the visual flair. He can. He can work a camera. (laughs) Yeah, he can. And and it is very, even from the beginning, the beginning is a very James Bondy type sort of opening, but it's 
it's has it's strong on its visuals. It really is. And there are snappy moments and some snappy dialogue, and he gets the most out of this cast, especially Hugh Grant and Charlie Hunnam. Colin Farrell also yeah. pops up. Yeah, uh, yeah. Henry Golding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have a lot. There's a lot of great actors in this movie. It's just, it, it's not, it never quite rises to the level that it thinks it does. Right. And then at the very end, itself, I keep going back to the word shameless, it so shamelessly sets itself up for a sequel. There are times when I think in that British sensibility, it thinks it's being cheeky, when it's like, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe that's something lost across the pond. I don't know. But uh, there are moments. So it's like when your dad thinks he's funny and he's not. <laughs> there, there are there are <laughs> moments to like in this movie and sequences to like. There really are. And he does. He, he can he can really work the camera. But uh, the script, as as involved and clever as it is, just never rises to the, le- to the level that it wants to. But, uh, but still, I think for a lot of people, we'll get uh, some enjoyment out of The Gentleman. Next up, we have a new take on a classic story. A young governess is hired by a man who has become responsible for his young nephew and niece after their parents' deaths. A modern take on Henry James's novella, The Turn of the Screw. It's called The Turning. Have you ever been a nanny? This is my first live-in job. Well, I hope you know what you're doing. The children are very special, Kate. <laughs> They're thoroughbreds. Geez, your friends must love it here. I have no friends. You have no friends? Yep. Well, you have one now. <laughs> Maybe. May I ask how the parents died? I don't go in that part of the house. Why not? Don't wanna. Hello? You know, the best thing about this movie is if you saw the Florida Project from a few years ago oh, and you yeah. were waiting to see that little girl again, here she is. Brooklyn Prince. And she's great. She is great. Timing is just boom. Yeah, in the Florida Project, she was absolutely astonishing. She she just had such a command of the screen. And, you know, it's funny because it, it, she's a couple of years older, so she doesn't look exactly the same. But it's it's very similar is that she is spot on. Her yeah. timing is great. Yep. She's got sass to burn. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, she's just the real deal. She really is. And then Finn Wolfhard, who was so great in It, yeah. he does a really good job in this one, too. He does a good job of going back and forth. He's the, you know, he's the spoiled, privileged nephew. And he goes back and forth really well between being sort of the tender, maybe frightened, protective older brother and being the sneering, condescending, privileged brat. Yeah, and if you're not familiar from with the, the, the turn of the screw, it was most famous. It's been made dozens yes. of times in different forms between uh, the TV and the big screen. It's There's been a lot of adaptations. The first one, the most famous, was, of course, The Innocence right, from the 1961. 1961, Jack Layton, Deborah Kerr was nominated for yeah, an Oscar for it. It's the, it's the high watermark for this, this particular set of films. It's a brilliant, amazing, remarkable movie. But one of the reasons that I think it lent itself potentially to a more modern adaptation is, although I absolutely adore... The Innocence, right? It hinges on the idea. It's one of those incredibly common horror tropes. Is this is this is the central female character insane, right. or is there something set supernatural afoot? And the the Innocence just toes that line perfectly. Mm-hmm. But what it comes down to as is the book does. as the book does. Mm-hmm. And what it comes down to is is she insane because she's a spinster and she's sexually repressed and she's never going to have that outlet. That's really what it comes down to, and that's hard to. That's hard to make work in modern times. Well, but then you have to realize when that 
the book was written in the eight, in the late eighteen oh, hundreds. Yeah. yeah. So even the, when it finally got around to having a big screen classic version in nineteen sixty one, different sensibilities were of course taking place. But that is a very strong point to make about about the innocence. Yeah. And as we get into talking about this movie more, uh, it, it's one of the many problems this movie has in that. When you're talking about a, a new adaptation of such a classic, you're going to think, okay, well, they must think they can bring something fresh to it, right? Yeah. And they try. They yeah. do try, but they don't. No. Um, I mean, so they set it in the States. Yeah, they bring it to the States. In it's, the 1990s. It's set in Maine. Right. Yeah, is is the big. And this time, the governess is played by... Now, Mackenzie Davis, she keeps... She's been very good in two movies that nobody saw that were pretty good movies. Right. First as Tully. Yeah. And then in the last uh, Terminator. Right. Which we thought was pretty good, but yeah. nobody went to see it. And so now she is the she's taken over the part of the governess that yeah. comes to take care of these two kids. Right. It's interesting that they set it in the 90s. It gives it kind of a fun grunge sensibility with the music that they bring in. And it and she makes some funny jokes her character does at the expense of this big estate and this con- this this concept of sort of having a a living governess which are funny and then the woman who plays Mrs. Gross the woman who plays the housekeeper who lives there she's a british actress yeah barbara martin she's, she's for years she's done mostly british tv Again, spot on. Yeah, so she is. There, there are absolutely zero complaints about this cast. There's, you know, basically four people that you ever see on screen. Each one of them is absolutely wonderful. There are parts of the film that actually do look pretty good. It's directed by Floria Sigismondi, who she, she directed The Runaways, but she's more known for music videos. Mm. And she, it does have a visually, it has a style, like the way that she works the room. Mm-hmm. But it just, she can't make it amount to anything. The problem is the really. Weak writing. It's the brothers who wrote The Conjuring uh, among uh, uh, a host yeah, of horror Hayes and Hayes. Right. Uh, Carrie and, and Chad. The way that they sort of update the reason that you're supposed to believe that she might be crazy, and then the way that they just cut the knees out of the ending of the film just make you wonder why anybody decided to make this. Exactly. And it's another one of those movies to me where it seems that seemed like the editing was done with a meat cleaver. Mm. I, it seemed to me like things were missing because everything came much too quickly. Yes. And so nothing was earned. You start seeing these scary faces in the window and these these noises mm-hmm. almost immediately. Yeah. And then they go away and, and then there's something else that she chases after a shadow or a person. And nothing, to me, nothing felt earned. It's not scary. It's PG-13. So right away, you're thinking, oh boy, how scary can it be? And as we've said before, it is possible to have great PG-13 horror. We always point to the ring. But right away, you start thinking, oh boy, okay, what are they going for? Well, they're going basically for jump scares, yeah. which can be done well, but they're not done well here. It's just, no. a, just a succession of not scary faces in mirrors, yep. faces in windows, and dark, scary locales inside this big mansion. And it's it, as it gets to the big change, the fresh vision, I guess you'd say, really the biggest thing, new thing they bring to it is how they change the ending. Right. And we're not going to spoil that, but it, for me, it didn't work at all. Not only that, not only did uh, I not care for the way they resolved the story this time, but it, the truth is that if you, in retrospect, if you look back over the red herrings, they actually don't work. They're right. nonsensical. Right. In retrospect, they're nonsensical. And that's really, really problematic for, you know, so it doesn't, de- doesn't deliver any real tension, any real atmosphere, any real scares, and uh, what they 
set up, they knock down nonsensically. Exactly. That's what I mean when I say I think something's been cut out. Right. Because surely that should have led to something, did it not? Uh, and then it's another one of those where if you watch the trailer and you think maybe a certain... Se- Ooh, that's creepy. You don't even see it in the it's movie. It's not in the movie! Yeah, it's, <laughs> so it's just... <laughs> it's it's really disappointing, and it's another case of, you know, you look at... You hate to, to decide before you go to see it, but when you say January... PG-13 horror film, I'm already thinking this is going to be disappointing. Right. And The Turning definitely was disappointing. Next up, one of this year's Oscar nominees with a familiar title. It's the story of a cop moving to Paris to join the anti-crime brigade of Montfermeil, discovering an underworld where the tensions between the different groups mark the rhythm. This is called Les Miserables. Le moyen de se faire entendre aujourd'hui. Tu vas trop loin, là! T'auras jamais l'esprit bac, toi. Parce que je joue pas au cowboy. And before you start singing One Day More, <laughs> no, it's not that. But it is Oscar nominated this year for Best International Feature. And uh, it, it is, it's not going to win. Parasite is going to yeah. win. But it's a worthy nominee. Yeah, it's, it's really an amazing film. And the, the reason that it's called Les Miserables is that the film itself is set in Montfermeil, which is where Hugo wrote the novel that the big musical and all the movies have been based. Uh, And filmmaker Laj Lai lived in an apartment building in this city and witnessed a uh, a riot that inspired him to write this film. Because basically what he's saying is nothing has changed since Mm -hmm. Hugo wrote this novel in the Mm -hmm. first place. It's a really fascinating movie. It's, you know, a new cop. And so it's basically a day and a half of his journey with his new partners through this this slum neighborhood that is primarily populated by Muslim immigrants. The cops are not very good at their job. What you see mostly, though, are the lives of these five or six little boys, these kids in the neighborhoods. And it's um, the movie is so wretching in the way it's told. I mean, you just... But at the same time, there are moments of real magic about it because there's this weird sideline about a missing lion from a, from a traveling circus. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, just a touch of magical realism to the film that gives it the tone that I think is appropriate to the childlike wonder that you'd like to see not absolutely crushed underfoot as these, as these children live out their lives in this neighborhood. It's incredibly well made. And it's, it's not like probably anything else I saw last year. Uh, I, again, I'm sorry that it has no shot at winning the Oscar because it's a <laughs> wonderful movie. Yeah, and if you remember, at the heart, the very heart of the story in the original Les Mis, it's a cop who will not give up pursuing one fugitive, right. Jean Valjean. Right. And then basically his entire attitude toward the underbelly of the city. And as this plays out with similar themes in this movie, I think there's also... A lot that can be transferred over to the U.S. Oh, yes. And the problems that you see with charges of brutality uh, among American police forces. No question. Yeah, absolutely no question. So it does have a, a real sense of urgency and relevance about it. And again, it is nominated this year for Best International Feature. So as Bong Joon-ho himself says... If you can deal with subtitles, you're going to find some great, great movies that way. And this is certainly one of them, Les Miserables. (laughs) Next up is a film with a central performance. I was a little surprised didn't get Oscar nominated. As she prepares to execute another inmate, Bernadine must confront the psychological and emotional demons her job creates, ultimately connecting her to the man she is sanctioned to kill. This is Alfre Woodard, starring in Clemency. I can't understand can't know what it's like 
I am alone. I am going to fight for him right up until the very moment you stick that needle in his arm. You've given me hope. I can't do this on my own anymore. We were talking a little bit earlier today about how this is uh, this would make an interesting bookend to watch with the underseen, unfortunately, just mercy Mm -hmm. as they both look at the American criminal justice system. One of the things that I think is almost revolutionary about clemency is that it it tells a similar story about the, the problematic criminal justice system from the point of view of a warden on uh, of death row inmates and she's not first of all she's a she which is amazing and the other thing is that she's actually she's not portrayed as a villain i mean she's a complete character yeah Uh, and it's actually it's a character study about this particular person and alfred woodard of course has been an amazing talent since she started acting in like the 70s and this is probably this is her at the height of her powers. Yeah, it really is. She she is amazing. It is a character study. It also reminded me a lot of a movie that nobody saw from last year called Trial by Fire. Right. About a guy who was on uh, on death row. Uh, in in really in the in the way not the story so much, but in the way that it uh, examined what working around this atmosphere day after day of people. Waiting, people thinking they're going to die, are they going to get a stay, or, and actually when it comes down to it, workers who actually have to put people to death. What that does to the people working in those jobs, and that's very much what this movie does, how she deals with it at work, and then how it affects her marriage. Right. Just really every aspect of her life and how eventually she just comes to sort of root all of it in who would be the next candidate, the next the next inmate uh, played beautifully by Aldous Hodge. Yeah. And it's it's a beautiful performance with I don't know how many words of dialogue he has. Not many. No, but he just sears right through the screen. He, he really and, does. You know, and he's always been good. I've never seen him do turn in a weak performance, but I've never seen him do anything like this. I mean, he's absolutely spectacular in this. And he would have to be, again, just to, to uh, be worthy of not having her on the screen. Because, I mean, so, you know, the film, it's, it differs from the other two that we talked about in that it, it doesn't have that kind of built-in Here's how we're working to get this person freed. And then you've got right. at the end, do we free them? Do we not? Right. It's not that. It's it's focused just on how this life has taken its toll on one character, on the Bernadine character. And so for that reason, a film like Just Mercy can be more satisfying to an audience because yes. it's got a very clear beginning, middle and end. And speeches about, you know, wrongs that have to be righted, things like that, which is t- totally understandable because those types of movies rely on telling a, a, a true story, basically a true story. Uh, that's how most of the time we see these movies brought to the big screen. So this is a similar subject, but it's looked at through a different lens, through not the person on death row, but for the person who works it day after day. Right, and so there's not nearly as clear-cut beginning, middle, or end right. of that story. And there isn't for this film, which I think is going to make it a challenge to a lot of moviegoers because it doesn't have that clear-cut structure. It's a beautiful movie, so sad, so well-delivered, and, and again, and one of the things that I love the most about it is that it, genuinely, it truly is different than anybody else's. And the writer-director is Chinoye Chukwu, 
hope I said that correctly. This is her second feature. Done a few shorts. This is her second feature. And I lo- one of the things, many things I like about the movie is I like the contrast it makes between Bernadine, Alfred Woodard's character, her connection with a co-worker, and then contrast it with her, her, her relationship with her husband yeah. as it is deteriorated. It's been deteriorating. You can tell that because this job has taken the toll. She's been in it for years. Yeah. And it's taking the toll and it really encapsulates in this one inmate played mm-hmm. by Aldous Hodge. And I like the way um, the film balances out those two relationships because yeah. she knows her work friend, not that she's messing around with him or anything, she's not, but she knows her work friend understands what she's going through right. and her husband, she says, you cannot. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's the most fascinating about this film is that we can't either. You, you know, the audience can't. You cannot know what it's like to have the the amount of control that she has and yet really no say in whether or not these men die. It's a heartbreaking film and just really worth seeking out. And that is clemency. And one more in limited release, two cult figures collide. It's a town struck by a meteorite, and the fallout is catastrophic. Color out of space. Look at this. All those years in the big city, we finally got out. We're living the dream. Maybe it is a dream. And then everything just blew up. Big flash, like a pink light. Or actually, I don't even know what color it was. It wasn't like any color I'd ever seen before. Looks like a meteorite. It's in the static, it's in the moisture. It's in here, it's out there. And what's out there is in here now. Everything's gonna be a-okay. This is Richard Stanley's first feature since the island of Dr. Moreau derailed his filmmaking career. <laughs> well, as we said, he brings together a couple of cult figures. Nicolas Cage, he's got his cult, and H.P. Lovecraft has his cult as well, and they come together. And I think we've mentioned before, we are not the biggest Lovecraft fans in the world. No, his, we're not. His type of sci-fi slash horror just really doesn't do it for me, but... If you're gonna if you're gonna do one, might as well bring Nicolas Cage to the party. Yeah, and the two of them together, I think they come up with something worth seeing here. Yeah, uh, you know, Lovecraft is hard to put to film because inevitably his stories are all about an image, a sound, or a color that can't be described and will drive you mad. That's really hard. <laughs> How to, do you, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's not hard to write because it, you know the you can't see or hear it in the writing. It's very hard to put to film because obviously you can. But I think that uh, that this that, that this film does it's as good an adaptation of straight adaptation of Lovecraft as you're likely to find. I mean his his films have his Novels have influenced countless horror films, oh, yeah. but this is an outright adaptation of of his story, Color Out of Space, and and I think that they do a a, a solid job. I think so. Um, don't expect full on unhinged Nicolas Cage. Um, he has his moments, but I think the best thing that that Stanley does here is is grounds even when it it gets weird. Once this meteorite lands in their farmhouse or near their farmhouse, and crazy things start happening. It's to me. It's always grounded in the family, right? How it affects the family, and if you wanted to to really expand it to any sort of metaphor, the, the meteorite, if you wanted to, could could uh, represent anything, any type of tumult, yeah, to a family mm-hmm. and how they react to it. 
and then how the different family members react to the other family members if they're reacting in a different way. Right. And I think that I think that's what makes the film keeps the film afloat throughout all the craziness is how it's grounded in that the family dynamic. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think that Cage, I'm not saying he doesn't go full Nick Cage. He does. But it, he doesn't do it. He's not as unhinged as you might expect. Right. Because it's like you're saying, the the sort of good dad parts, you know, he is. He's very, I think, endearing as a as a father and as a as a husband in this film. And I think that's necessary. Not all of the performances around him are very strong. Julie Richardson plays his wife. She's always good. And she is also in um, the, the Turning. The Turning. Yeah, so it's so. funny. She's got two movies yeah. out this weekend. Yeah. Good for yeah. you, Julie Richardson. <laughs> And Tommy Chong right. plays a squatter on the land, their beloved squatter. And that's always fun, <laughs> it too. Is. It is. Uh, but then, you know, as the meteorite kind of slowly but surely has its effect on everybody, he does, he gets a little Peter Lowe. A little bit. He gets a little Peter Lowe, uh, <laughs> which is, of course, from the uh, Vampire's Kiss. Um, but he doesn't He doesn't get as nuts as he does in, say, Mandy or, or Mom and Dad. Right. But he does. You get flashes of the super weird Nicholas Cage, which is always fun. I mean, that's that's always fun, and there all there are toward the end of the film some impressive practical effects that, if you know the story, are kind of necessary when you see what's going on in the attic. You know, anytime you talk about full unhinged Nick Cage, I go straight to Port of Call, Bad Lieutenant. That that to me might have might be him hitting ten. Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> And always, for me, it actually, it goes back to uh, to Wild at Heart. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. that's just a, that's just off, a yeah. masterpiece of a film, Wild at Heart. <laughs> We're off the track. But anyway, this feels to me like, I know it's easy to throw around the term B-movie, mm-hmm. but it feels like a proud B-movie to me. I agree with you. you know? I do. And makes it all the more satisfying that way. So I think if you're fans of Nick Cage, if you're fans of H.P. Lovecraft, I think this is definitely worth seeking out. I think it's a limited release, but you can probably find it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're not going to be blown away by it. It's not going to become your favorite movie. It just isn't. It's not that great. And there are some real weaknesses, especially in the um, supporting performances and in, and in the writing, to be honest with you. But it's, it's like I said, I mean, for a straight Lovecraft adaptation, it's one of the best I've seen. Yeah, and it'll hold your attention. And that is The Color Out of Space. And that takes us to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Got another Oscar nominee out on home video. It is Pain and Glory. You've got nomination for Antonio Banderas. Uh, I have to say it like that. He's finally nominated for Best Actor for this. And also, this is nominated for, again, Best International Feature. And this is Banderas back with Pedro Almodovar. Right. And they've done, uh, they did, one of the, our favorite that they've done is The Skin I Live In. Yeah. Yeah, so good. And this is very, I mean, a lot of Almodovar stuff is autobiographical. Yeah. But this is so intimate. Yeah, it is. And so autobiographical yeah. that sometimes you almost feel like you're intruding. Yes. And that's the, the beauty of Banderas' performance. It's so understated. Yes. But as the film goes toward the little bit of twist at the end, not a huge twist, but it goes somewhere that makes it all the more heartfelt. I think uh, Banderas really brings that home. Yeah, I think you're right. And and uh, and they're working again with Almodovar favorite Penelope Cruz. Mm-hmm. And she is once again just she's so good in his films. I'm not <laughs> saying she's not good in other films, but there's something about the two of them together. Yeah. She's so good in his films and she's great. She's yeah. great in this. And there's a little boy that you'll just want to take home with him because he's so cute. Yeah, but this is Banderas's show and he makes the most of it. And that's pain and glory. Also out this week, Zombieland. 
Double Tap. We enjoyed it. And we did. It's, and it's one that we, I remember the first 15 minutes or so, I thought, oh, no. And then it picked up. Did. It really picked up. And the funny thing is, as excited as we were to see that all four leads, the old gang, was back right. together. Getting the band back together. Yeah, really what makes this film go is the the fresh meat. Yes, exactly. The new characters, especially Zooey Deutsch. She's uh, great. But, but all of the new characters, you know, they're fun and they add a lot of color to, yes. you know, the sort of the, this core four who is tired of each other. <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't rise to the level of the first one, but uh, we thought it was a hoot. And the animated version of The Addams Family is out this week as well. <laughs> I was so hopeful. I love the Adams family, as does everybody. I love the Adams family so much, and and I, I know it's just a vocal cast, but it's a great cast. Charlie Saron and and Oscar Isaac, and you know, and uh, and Allison Janney. Yep. The one who steals the show is Chloe Moretz, mm-hmm. who plays Wednesday Adams. Such a great character. It is a you great... Gotta, you got to get it right. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I would not have guessed, to be honest with you, that Chloe Moretz would do a great job, but she was she's perfect. Remember, in the feature films, Christina Ricci was great. Oh, my God. Just she could have been better. Yeah, so now Chloe Moretz. And she does a great job, but on the whole, the movie just, just lays there flat and does nothing. Yeah, and that's too bad. Next week, we're going to close out January. Let's see if we can close out on an up note. We've got Gretel... And Hansel. Fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the trailer looks good. Yeah, that's right. Also, we've got uh, Blake Lively. Kind of, is this a secret agent thing? It is. The rhythm section and the garden left behind. I know nothing about that. Yeah, it's uh, it's a beautiful film about a trans woman in New York. Okay. We'll talk about those, and who knows, something else might pop up uh, between now and then. But in the meantime, let us know what you thought about anything this week, the gentleman, the turning, the new Les Mis, whatever. Always good to keep the conversation going with us on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other podcasts focusing only on horror movies is called Fright Club. All that can be found at madwolf.com. We always appreciate you checking in with the screening room. And just do us a favor while you're here, if you would, subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you so much. Until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.